Homestyle Green, episode 123, Organic Architecture with Eric Corey Freed. G'day and welcome back to another episode of Homestyle Green. I'm Matthew Cutler-Welsh and this is the podcast all about inspiring people to make a better place to live. This week I'm very privileged to bring you an interview I did a few weeks ago now with Eric Corey Freed, who is a, well, he's among other things, he's an author of um, 11 books and he's an inspiring architect and an outspoken advocate for biomimicry and just doing things better, basically. I'll read out his uh, Twitter feed shortly, which I think is the best description of himself. Um, but before we get into that and today's episode, just like to say thank you very much to Proclima for bringing us this episode and supporting the show. If you are looking at doing a renovation or a new build, then definitely head on over to Proclima. They will help you get sorted with your building wraps and tapes and air tightness. And that's a very important aspect of home performance. So if you're at any stage of the design and possibly the construction, then head on over. They've got a great team. Part of what's great about Proclimber is they're really big on education. So if you've got any questions about any general concepts, um, as well as their, their great products, then they're more than happy to answer those. So get in touch with John or Thomas or the rest of the team there. www.proclimber.co.nz or proclimber.com. Now, Eric Corey Free describes himself as VP in Global Outreach for Global sorry, I'll read that again. VP of Global Outreach for Living Future and Living Building. Now that's the Living Future uh, Living Building Challenge, which I've referred to a few times in this podcast and is a fantastic aspirational goal for a lot of people for uh, a, a greener, better way of designing. He's a green architect, he's author of eleven books a proud daddy, and connoisseur of 80s music, chocolate, and biomimicry. Who doesn't love that? I started out by asking Eric about those 11 books. Yeah, so uh, what it started, I, I mean, I, I wrote my first book in 2007, and, um, and then I had an option with the publisher for two more, which I then used, and then, and then did a fourth book. Uh, um, and then I... Uh, and I was talking with a with a good friend of mine who's also an architect, and we found this um, well, essentially this kind of need in the industry. Uh, in the here in the U.S., um, architects need to well, you know, like most countries, they need to study for a licensing exam, and the, all the materials for the licensing exams are terrible. Right. And he and I both, um, you know, had a had a certain attitude towards education, and. Um, and how you communicate things to people. And we were kind of just complaining really about the, the lack of any good materials, study materials for, for the architects licensing exams. Mm -hmm. um, and then, so we kind of put together this idea that we would, we would create the type of materials that we always wanted to have when we were studying. And so then we did a series of seven books um, that we just finished. And it was a, it was a three year effort and it was wow. a nightmare. It was a lot of work. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but also, you know, but also there were, there were a lot of other things that we wanted to control too. We wanted, we wanted, um, we wanted to be more than a book. There was, 
so in addition to book, there's, there's videos and audio companions and it's a, it's a full package. And so we knew we also couldn't go a traditional publishing route. So we started a publishing company essentially to, to do that. And, and, uh, and so and then, though, yeah. is that, that's focused on arc professional architects who are going for their license. Yeah. It's also part of a larger idea, um, about, um, which I guess is a philosophy of mine, but, but a larger, a larger idea about information, you know, um, empowering people. So one of the things that I, that, that I'd spent a lot of time on is actually mentorship. Um, because I was fortunate to be mentored at a young age and it made a world of difference for me. And so I've been paying that forward for the last 25 years. Oh. And so the, you know, the, the idea is that I, you know, I, as I say to my, as I say to my students and as I say to people that I, that, you know, that come to me for advice, that we all have the ability to make the world a better place. We all have the ability to change the world. It's, it's really about overcoming your own, your own insecurities and your own limitations about things. And that typically people are their own worst enemy when it comes to creating a path towards success. So, and David and I, my partner have, we, you know, we have a lot of similar beliefs about this. Um, um, so, so we ended up starting this company and now three years later we have these seven books. Uh, and it's, it's, you know, it's nice to have, but they're very technical books. I mean, they're not, they're not sexy glamorous coffee table books. They're really <laughs> detailed, heavy technical books for people studying the exam. Mm-hmm. But, but it's also part of a larger thing, which I discovered after the first book, which is the process of writing a book is cathartic. What I've learned and what I've now kind of accepted as part of the, part of the process is that, it, is that it's almost like design and that you're not really sure what you'll get at the end. Mm-hmm. You know, you might set out to write a, a, a history book about the Civil War but the truth is, at the end, it could be something completely different than what you anticipated. Mm-hmm. And I like that part of the process. It also it also helps me clear my thoughts. You know, after the first book, essentially, I took these things that I'd learned over you know twenty years in random order, and I put them into into an order and to a narrative that people could understand. And the process of doing that makes you incredibly clear and focused. Mm. And I, I noticed that I was talking to clients more clearly about, about ideas that I addressed in the book, that if somebody asked me about green roofs, I could speak with a clarity and a focus that I didn't have before writing the book. And so it, it almost, it's almost like defragging your hard drive in a way. Nice. And, uh, so the books end up becoming, um, a way that I seek clarity and peace of mind now. And, and so at any time, I'm always working on three books in different stages. Wow. And, and they might never see the light of day or they, or they, you know, or hopefully they'll go all the way. But, but to me, it doesn't matter. I just like the idea of collecting the ideas and, um, and then putting them down. It's, very, it's just very um, satisfying to me. You've and, got uh, you've got a number of titles under the in a different genre under the the um, the for dummies uh, franchise the green building and remodeling and greening your home for dummies. How did you get involved with that? Well, the dummies folks are it, it's um, it's actually Wiley John Wiley Publishers, which is a huge you know one of the top three. Yeah, and 
I had started writing a column for um, greenerbuildings.com back in the day. And it was a monthly column and I was doing it for free, but I did it because I, I was enjoying just kind of clarifying my thoughts. And then, and I wanted to kind of use that as practice for a book that I wanted to write. And in the course of writing that column, they, they, you know, they kind of discovered me that way. Right. Their, their business model is very similar to Ikea. Uh, in that they don't ex- really accept solicitations or submissions. What they do is very market-driven. So the same way Ikea will say, our market research shows that we need to develop a nightstand for $15. Right? And then their in-house designers go and make it. That's kind of what the dummies people do, is they they make a list of topics that are hot that year. So right. the same year, the same year that I wrote Green Building for Dummies, they also put out Sudoku for dummies because Sudoku was very hot <laughs> that year. And yeah. they're, and they're, they're, they don't care. I mean, they, they, you know, they, they just like getting these hot topics and getting them, getting them in the hands of people. It's, they have a, they have a formula that really works. And to me, it was really ideal because I wanted as many people as possible to, to get the information. So what, what better imprint than the for dummies brand? I mean, I, I mean, can you think of a, a better one that, makes the information more accessible. Yeah. Uh, so, so I was, I loved it. And working with them was, was actually great. They're, they're, um, they give you this, um, the very first thing they do is they give you this book called how to write a dummies book for dummies. <laughs> of course they do. <laughs> which is this internal thing. And they, and they, they really help you through the process, but, um, but it's still a lot of work. I mean, I had to still write it. It's 384 pages of stuff. So, um, but that that got me hooked, and I, I imagine that I'll always be working on on some form of a book for the rest of my life. You know, you know, just the idea of compiling thoughts, seeing if they go anywhere, and and then and then uh, and then doing the research. And sometimes the research doesn't turn into a book; it turns into a lecture or, or into an article. Mm-hmm. And and I'm I'm fine with that. I don't have any I don't have any heavy expectations about that. I just I, I like the idea of compiling information in a way that other people can understand it. Given that Wiley's picked up green building and remodeling as a hot topic, what does that mean for green building and sustainable design? <laughs> it means that it's as popular as Sudoku. That's what it means. <laughs> yeah. Is it, a, is it a fad? Is Sudoku a fad? Well, I, I wrote the book in 2007, so it's, we're already a ways away from that, I think. Uh, I, you know, it's funny. I used to get that question a lot about is green building a fad? And then, and then the world kind of fell apart. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and we had, we discovered that the 10 hottest years on record all occurred in the last decade. And we discovered that we've lost 22 species last year. And we discovered that 400,000 people around the world died due to climate change related effects last year. And so suddenly this thing that was this abstract thing off in the distance that we didn't have to worry about um, suddenly became very real very quickly. And, and there were several tipping points. And one of the biggest actually has been Hurricane Sandy. Yeah. Which is interesting because five years ago, the Deepwater Horizon um, exploded and um, and for 87 days dumped oil into the Gulf of Mexico. And I, at the time, I really thought I really thought that was going to be the major tipping point, and it it really wasn't. 
um, the net impact of that has been rather minimal. We haven't really we haven't really changed our policies. Um, in fact, we've had ten thousand oil spills in the five years since in the Gulf of Mexico. So we haven't really learned a thing in terms of energy policy. But Hurricane Sandy hitting New York had an effect. Seeing, you know, this wasn't poor black people in Louisiana that were affected. This was New York City. Mm. And seeing them scrounge for food and water and basic necessities of life and coming together to share, you know, um, share electrical power had a profound effect on things. And so you have the governor of New York saying that this is something we have to address now. You have the mayor of New York at the time saying that this is something that we have to address now. And now you have the president saying that it's the biggest threat to national security along with the Pentagon. So I think, I think in the, um, if you look at the graph of adoption, you know, the, there's the graph that shows the early adopters and then the acceptors. And then I think, I think all of that's been transcended simply because we don't have the luxury of looking at anything as a fad anymore. In answer to your question, yeah, bamboo floors and, and blue jean insulation as a fad has kind of come and gone. But the idea of building resilient buildings that regenerate their environment, that provide their own energy, that process their own waste, that collect and store and reuse their own water and grow their own food, that is not a fad. In fact, that's our inevitable future, and we have to accept it sooner rather than later. So is the, what's the driver there? Is And I'm talking about here the, the thing that has started to mobilize the general public. Is it a deep understanding of climate change or is it resilience? That's a good question. A deep, well, when it comes to the general public, I don't know if they have a deep understanding of much of anything. Yeah. And I don't, I don't, I'm not saying that in a cynical manner. I'm just saying it as, as, as someone who, who, who tries to understand things in the world and is often frustrated. Mm. Um, I think um, – well, let's see. I've got examples. So I, you know, I'm fortunate enough to get to travel around the world and speak. And um, so I was in Alaska, and I'm with a bunch of really old school builders – who in any other state would all I would automatically assume would be conservative and probably voted Republican their entire life. And yeah. And you know, I'm around these guys and we're having a lot of fun. They're great guys and they have a lot of interesting stories. But we're in Alaska and we're we're hiking and and they're they're telling me just these anecdotes. Mm-hmm. And they said, see that glacier up there? That glacier, I've never seen that glacier recede that far back before. When I was a kid, it used to come all the way down to here. And you and you see these mosquitoes. We never had mosquitoes this far north before. Yeah. And and you see that moose over there peeking its head out in the woods. The moose never came this far south before. And you see these eagles. We've never seen the eagles fly over here before. I mean, they had they had just dozens and dozens of anecdotes of how climate change had affected them in their lifetime. We used to have the effect, and Al Gore talked about it in his movie, of um, that the frog in the in the proverbial pot of boiling water, mm-hmm. where where the frog doesn't notice that it's being mm-hmm. boiled because it's happening over such a slow period. That's now changed. And now in a 20-year, just in a 20-year span, which is enough for any adult to kind of realize, they have, everyone in the planet has anecdotes that they can relate to of, 
I don't remember the summers being this hot and I don't remember the winters being this cold and I don't remember the seasons switching so much. And I don't remember having, you know, this type of drought before. And, mm. you know, mm. so the cycle of impact has changed uh, to such where it's memorable. And that's what's causing, I mean, that's what's really causing this understanding that you're talking about. It's not an understanding of the why uh, or even the how to fix it. It's really just an understanding of the effects. And they know, everybody knows something's wrong. And oil and coal companies can politicize it as much as they want and try to get people to deny it. And, and they can try to muddle the message. But the truth is that we all have memories that can't be erased of the climate acting in a very different way. So in your mind, what's more important? Is it to create buildings and urban spaces and, and built environments that use fewer resources and, and do less bad? Or is it kind of a time where we need to batten down the hatches and make buildings that can withstand hurricanes and, and more extreme temperatures? <laughs> Yeah, we've lost the ability to have, we've, we've lost the luxury of having to choose. That's what's happened. Uh, urgency has happened, mm -hmm. right? And and that's the difference between when I wrote the first book, the Dummies book in 2007 and now, is that we've lost that luxury to like, gosh, it'd be nice if we did this. My, my own philosophy has changed greatly in that, um, you know, as as a green architect for 25 years who spent a lot of time helping people be less bad i realized that that i i don't have that luxury anymore if buildings are bad and cities are bad in terms of their impact and green buildings and green cities are are trying to minimize that impact and therefore be less bad i don't want to be bad at all i want to be good mm -hmm. and so you have to step back and ask yourself what is what is going to look like and it's not using less toxic materials. Good would mean using no toxic materials. Good doesn't mean you're using less energy. It means you're not using any fossil fuel energy and you're producing your own renewable energy. That's what good looks like. So it starts to set a bar, a roadmap of what our buildings and cities and built environment need to look like. Not should look like, but need to, of what is good. Mm. So a good is a net zero building. It generates more energy than it consumes. Good is a building that processes its own waste. Good is a building that uses water multiple times and collects rainwater and stores it and cleans it to do so. And that's good. And yes, there's, of course, a resiliency angle to that that makes a lot of economic sense as well. But the truth is we can't be less bad. You know, the analogy that I've always said is that if we're headed off a cliff and we're going 60 miles an hour, slowing down to 30 isn't really going to help you. The outcome is still going to be the same. And so we need to turn the wheel. We need to go in a different direction. Is that what attracted you to Living Building Challenge? It's exactly what, I mean, that's exactly it. I, I have a growing frustration um, with one project at a time. So I, and my timeline was such that, okay, I was an architect. I was, you know, I, I was getting good or getting better at finding clients and getting them engaged and doing projects and growing the staff and all those kind of typical pathways to success that you'd normally get as an architect. I was on that path and I was very frustrated. And in 2001, I was already getting impatient. It was always already not going fast enough. And so in 2001, I made a very conscious, conscious shift that I would kind of step back from some of the projects and some of the day-to-day -day in order to focus on reaching more people. 
And I, I mapped out a, I took a blank sheet of paper and I mapped out a plan how to do this. And it, it basically said, okay, from now on, I'm going to start writing, speaking, teaching, and consulting. And then I kind of made four columns. And then under each one, I, I almost did a little task list of, okay, what do I need to do to do that? And I didn't know I could charge for those things. I didn't, I didn't think about it that far. I mean, I didn't worry about it that much. I was just, I just knew that I had to do it. And I hadn't, at that point in 2001, I hadn't really done those four things before, speaking, writing, teaching, or consulting. But I knew that I had to reach more people. So I, I hired, um, I mostly, I had only had junior people working for me at that point. So I'd hired a senior person, my first ever, which is always a kind of a, a stressful thing. And, um, and said to her, I'm hiring you because I want you to run, you know, dealing with the contractors and the building departments and all that time consuming stuff. So I can be free to pursue these other things. And, um, and that's what I did. So I, I just started, I just did it. Nobody asked me to, I just, I started writing. So I started writing columns for, for magazines and at first it was for free. Yeah. Cause I didn't care at that point. And then, um, and then you, if you get good at it, then they pay you. And then with teach started saying, Hey, you guys should have a green building class. And they said, okay, well, will you teach it? And that, I mean, that was really kind of it. And then with the consulting, it was more like, well, listen, you already have an architect, but I, I'm happy to work with your architect to make the building better. And so they're, the consulting's born. And, um, and with the speaking, I just started speaking. <laughs> I just started, you know, submitting to conferences and seeing if I liked it. And I, and I worked at it. You know, I, I aspired to be a better writer. I aspired to be a better speaker. I sucked at it when I first started, as most people do. Yeah. And, um, and then so I, I got, you know, I, that's what happened. I, I, it was a growing unrest that I wasn't, re, I wasn't moving fast enough. There was this building sense of urgency that I could feel was coming. And now it's really upon me. And so last year, I then stepped away from the architecture firm almost entirely uh, to focus my efforts on this nonprofit called the Living Future Institute and helping, you know, helping, you know, run it as, as their VP in part because they need me. I mean, they need, they need, they needed an architect who knew, who knows how to generate buzz and impact and, you know, and get people motivated, but also I need them. You know, I, 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 you know, I couldn't sit on another meeting and argue with, with a client for four hours about their countertop in good conscience, you know, as granted, it was a green countertop and it was probably all recycled scrap aluminum or something, you know, who knows what it was, but I, you know, I just couldn't do it. It just felt, it felt weird. It felt like I was um, not, not doing what I was supposed to be doing. How do you create buzz? <laughs> well, gosh. So I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell you, but it's, you're going to, you might think it's cynical. I don't, I don't see it as cynical. I see it as hopeful, but the way you create buzz is that you have to understand that most people are devoid of passion in their life. Mm -hmm. They want to have passion, but they don't. In fact, I remember being 16 and reading Walden by Henry David Thoreau. And there's a line it's very early. On, I used to remember the page number, um, but he said, the mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. And it hit me like a brick when I was 16. Cause I thought, Oh my God, that can't be true. You, you know, your 16 year old self doesn't want to think that that's actually the way the world works. And unfortunately it is. 
Most people are devoid of passion. They lack it in their lives. And when they encounter genuine passion, genuine enthusiasm, they're drawn to it. And so my entire marketing plan in 2001 was really to find ways to get in front of people to speak passionately and effusively about what I believe in. And it's a powerful thing. It's, it's, it also teaches you two things right away. The first thing is if you do this, if you're willing to do this, if you have the bravery to overcome your own, you know, nonsense of, Oh, I don't want to speak in front of people. If you're, if you're able to do that, two things will happen. The first thing is you will frighten people away. Yeah. Right. You'll, you know, whatever it is, whether you're writing an article, a very opinionated article or standing up in front of a room full of people, you will scare people off. And that's a good thing. You should, you should be pushing it to that limit. And you don't need to please everybody. That's fine. Um, I, you know, it's ideal if you don't upset them. But, but one is you're going to scare people away. But two is you're going to start to attract new people. And those are the people that you want anyway as your friends and as your clients and as your colleagues and as your partners. So, you know, it's this idea that I had that I, you know, that if I can get in front of people and speak passionately, I'll drive people away <laughs> but I'll hopefully attract new people and then clear out my life and surround myself with the people I want to be around. And, um, and that's why I do that exercise with, with, you know, the students, you know, I get a lot of students every year that contact me and I, and so I run them through a series of exercises to make them realize that they can do this too. That just because they're 20 doesn't mean that they, they can't have an impact on the world now. And so a lot of what we talk about is, okay, what are you waiting for? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that's, that's how you generate buzz. I mean, that's kind of the big general picture. And then of course there's specifics, you know, uh, you know, how to be a better speaker, how to be a better person for interviews in, you know, in, in talking to the press, how to find press and get them excited about something and turn their head. I mean, that there's, are all skills that you pick up, but, but they're just skills and they can be taught to anybody. Should, should all architects be, leaders and and should architects all have an opinion <laughs> um it's a good question i yeah well should should is the key op, key operator there yes they should will they no probably not What uh, you, you mentioned that you're the passion, um, and that's what people are attracted to. What what are you most passionate about? Well, in terms of what I mean, I have a lot of I have a lot of things that I that I'm passionate about. What drives you from? I'm interested in what what. I, got you started on this path, but you also said that you've changed a lot in the last 20 years. So maybe start back when you were designing schools as a 25 year old and, and winning awards for, for that work. What, what got you involved in, in the whole architecture scene in the first place? <laughs> um, well, very, I mean, very um, selfishly. I mean, it was, very, it was a very selfish thing. I started as a kid drawing buildings. That uh -huh. was it. Uh, and, it, you know, I was eight years old and I was drawing buildings and people would say, oh, are you going to be an architect? And I was like, what's that? You know, it was very, it was very innocent. Yeah. And I, you know, I, um, 
you know, I've told the story many times, but essentially I grew up, I grew up in, in inner city Philadelphia on the East coast in, um, uh, a row, what's called a row house, which is basically a, you know, block long box of houses, little tiny townhouses essentially. And they're wooden houses, but they're covered with fake brick. Yeah. And then, and then, and then the ones that I lived in, they had the shutters that were fake. They were, they were glued to the house and they were too small anyway. They wouldn't even cover the windows yeah, yeah. anyway, but they were, but you know, my mother used to go, Oh, they look so cute. And I, they used to drive me crazy. So there were things that bothered me and the floor plan was even simple and dumb. It was a, a you know, typical dumbbell plan upstairs with, you know, bedroom, bedroom, bathroom, hallway. Yeah. You know, the kind of thing you could, you could draw in your sleep and, uh, and so full of missed opportunities, you know, I, and I, and I would just kind of sit there and kind of imagine like me with a sledgehammer poking holes in this box, find new ways to bring in light and, you know, scraping off that fake brick and putting on a true facade. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I didn't even know what those things, I mean, I didn't know what the word facade was at the time. I just wanted to like, it's fake and it's not even real. Cause I could see how thin they were, you know, and yeah. it just bothered me. And so I was surrounded by, you know, kind of boring, dumb boxes that I knew that I could do better than. And, um, <laughs> and so, uh, I started, um, I just started drawing buildings and then, and then right around that same time, maybe at nine or 10, my mother took me to, um, to a Frank Lloyd Wright building. Yeah. It's actually the only one in Philadelphia and it's, uh, it's one of his last ones. It's, um, Beth Shalom Synagogue, which is this gorgeous building and it's unlike anything you know, you've ever seen. And when you're 10, any 10 year old, you would take to that thing. They would fall in love with it. Cause it looks like it's out of the future, even though it was built in 1959. And I was just amazed. And we're in this essentially chapel and you feel like you're, you're cradled in the hands of God essentially. And that's, and that was the intent. The floor is this feels like you're, you're cupped in somebody's hand. And the whole thing is this translucent lantern. And I'm sitting there and there are birds flying overhead and I see their shadows on the glass and I look down and then see the shadows pass along the floor. And it was just, it was a revelation. And so I, 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 it wasn't that I knew I wanted to be an architect. I think a lot of people have that experience. It's, it's that I knew that I wanted to be a certain type of architect. I knew I wanted to be an architect that would create things of beauty that would inspire people, that would motivate people. And so my, my entire career path was, was on that track. Right. So when I, you know, when I was still in school, I started working uh, for mentors of mine, people I would find, you know. And so I went to work in New York with Beverly Willis, who's a genius. And I, I said to her, I want to learn from you how to run a sole proprietor visionary practice. And then when I left New York, I went to Santa Fe and I said, I want to learn from you to add. I, I want to learn from you how to run a sole proprietor visionary practice. That's what I wanted to learn. That's what I wanted to have. And that's what I was setting my, my whole life up for. And what got in the way was this global catastrophe, <laughs> creating a sense of urgency where I had, I, I had to essentially say to myself, I need to put kind of my selfish desires on hold uh, and pursue this idea of getting the word out because I, th- I think that I would be good at it. Mm-hmm. Was there a particular incident or person that really drove that? Um, made that connection for you though, because 
I mean, there are loads, loads of architects out there that, that see big storms happen, um, but they just carry on doing things the way they've done them. What, what was different for you? Well, I think it was, it was my mentors. So I, you know, I was obsessed with Frank Lloyd Wright from a very young age and, but he had already passed away, um, long before I was born. And so I started reaching out to his former students and seeing what those, what those people had, because at that point they were, they were all old, mostly guys, but they were old guys at that point, but seeing them, what they had done with their careers, because they were so talented, but had trouble getting out from under the shadow of Mr. Wright. But seeing them focus on, you know, go through the 60s and 70s and focus on passive solar houses and earthen houses. And so, you know, one of one of my biggest mentors was Malcolm Wells, mm-hmm. who um, he he's essentially the kind of father of underground building, he called it. Right. With the idea that, you know, if you're going to build a building, you're going to, you know, you're going to scrape the ground to build your building and then you need to restore the nature that you've destroyed. You know, you need to replace it. Like you peel back a carpet, you build your thing and then put it, put the carpet back is, you know, as he would say. Mm-hmm. And he, you know, just seeing him devote his life um, to that idea, to this integration that you could make beautiful design that was also, you know, also regenerative and transformative and that it was possible. I mean, they gave, they gave me models that I knew would be possible, you know, and I, and I think that was a key part of it was that I, I, I saw that it could be done and that I, that I could do this and then anybody else could too. And I tell my students that, that they, I expect them to do this. I, I almost demand that they do this. Mm. Mm. And it's their, it's their, it's their responsibility to do it. You know, you, and I, I also, I also want to plant a bug in their head. I, I want them to feel bad. Like, imagine if they, if they leave me as, a, as their teacher, and they go out and do corporate crap, and they just start producing strip malls and, you know, McDonald's. Like, there's some architect that draws up those McDonald's plans, right? So, if they started doing that, I'd want, I want them to feel bad about it. I want them to know that it's, that it's, a, they're, they're wasting their talents and they're wasting their opportunity for impact. You'd feel insulted That's- by that. Yeah, very much. And you you had asked me earlier, should architects have feel a responsibility? Yes, absolutely. We're we're they should. But will they? I you know, I I don't I don't know. You know, I meet I meet a lot of architects who who end up saying things to me like, "Well, no nobody's and nobody's asking me for green buildings." <laughs> and I said, "Well, what's what's your portfolio like?" And they go, oh, I have a history of just raping and pillaging the planet. You know, they don't, I mean, they don't say that, but, but you look at their portfolio and that's what it is. And I, and I say, oh, I, I can see why nobody's asking you for these things. You know, you've been building crap. You're, I mean, you painted yourself in a corner. So how does someone get themselves out of that corner? If they, they want to do sustainable design, but they're just getting this constant stream of, of clients who want this, um, uh, to sell basically bespoke, uh, not bespoke, um, commodity houses or just cheap and cheerful buildings. Right. Um, well, the, the longer you've done it, the harder it'll be. Right. If you've mm. got a, if you've got 30 year portfolio of building crap, the harder it'll be, but it's been done. And actually the example that I have is one that'll surprise most people. And it's, um, it's one of the most famous architects in the world right now, Frank Geary. 
he had 25 years, I think, of building essentially malls, pretty boring malls for developers. And he was very unhappy about it. And I'm paraphrasing this whole story, I know, but, uh, but essentially one of his, one of his developer clients had said, what do you want to do? And he, and he showed him this little house that he'd done for himself. That was weird. It was, you know, it had chain link fence and it was, but it was an, it was an artistic expression. And so he had to make a, a shift. And so that, that's, that's what you have to do. You have to hold on. My dog is going nuts right now. Calm down. down. What are you doing? My dog, she wants to play now. Go to sleep. So, um, but you have to be willing to essentially risk upsetting clients. You have, you can't wait to be asked. You have to, you have to basically draw a line in the sand and say, okay, starting today, all of our projects are going to be green and we're going to, you know, we're going to make a lot of mistakes, but we're going to be willing to make mistakes, but yeah. we're going to tell the clients that this is our goal. And yes, like I, you know, like I said to you earlier, you're going to scare people away, mm-hmm. but you're also going to start to attract people. Yeah. And you have to trust and have faith in that. One of my, one of my old mentors, uh, Ed Boniface in Santa Fe, New Mexico, you know, we'd be, we, you know, we'd, we'd have projects underway and they'd, they'd be wrapping up. And I, I, it was just me and him. And I would know that there were no other projects left to do. And I would say, what, what are we going to do in two weeks when we finish, when we finish the show, we don't have any more work. And I'd start to get frantic. And he would say, he said, he would always just, eh, it'll be fine. And sure enough, you know, I'd like, uh, I'd submit, <laughs> I'd submitted a, a permit set on Friday and I think, okay, I don't have anything to do on Monday. I don't know what I'm working on Monday. And Monday morning, some new client would come in the door. Yeah. Like literally there was this one time, this woman, she used to wear um, vanilla lotion and she smelled amazing. She used to smell like vanilla. And she just, I remember we, I had nothing to do and I didn't know what I was going to work on that week or, you know, I thought I was going to lose my job. And, and she walked in with these jangly uh, bracelets and all this jewelry. And she said, would you design me a house? <laughs> just like that. Okay. We have another house to work on. <laughs> Perfect. And it just taught me, it just taught me to kind of have faith in yourself that, that, um, if you, if you, if you've done the right things, if you've been expressive about and clear to people about what you believe and what you want, that, you know, it'll kind of work out. Sometimes the timing isn't always that perfect, but, but it tends to be. Yeah. And so you have to be willing to scare people off and in the hopes that you'll attract the right people. Yeah. Hey, um, very quickly before we wrap up, Eric, um, flipping it around to the client side now, if, if someone's wanting a home that's going to be comfortable, efficient, and they also are conscious of wanting to do good, um, but also acknowledging they, they're going to build something, what would be your tips for them? What, what sort of top three things do they need to think about to create a good space to live? <laughs> just three huh the top three top three gosh well um the first thing would would be design it for yourself don't design the way you think you should live but design it the way that you want to live with my clients you know i i'd always i'd always made them go through this very extensive interview process and they always they always said it was like being in therapy yeah. 
you know, because I would ask them really weird questions. And um, such as, uh, well, gosh, I'd ask them a lot of things. So I would say, you know, do you want to have guests? Not should you have guests, but I mean, do you want to? And how long do you want them to stay? And you know, here's a good example: you ask people if they watch TV, and most people will deny that they watch television. But then you go to their house and front and center in their living room is a giant television that's always on. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, I, I don't know if it's uh, solely an American conceit or not, but they <laughs> they they kind of deny that they even watch television. So, if, okay, if you're going to watch television, then let's design around it. But but we can we can design the TV so it can be hidden easily when you want to have company over. You know, how do you want to live, not how do you think you should live? Yep. So don't tell me how you think it oh, we're this family that has this formal living room and television's never on. That's, it's not reality. How do you really live? Mm, mm. Um, one of the things that I do is I measure the clients. I used to do that a lot. I'd measure their, I'd measure their little legs and their little arms and because I want to know what their, <laughs> I want to know what their reach is. You know, I, if they're in the kitchen, I want to know how high can I put something? Yeah. And um, it actually started, I did a, I did a condo for, um, for a basketball player. And everything had to be bigger. Yeah. Much, it was all custom. And the sink, normally sink is, you know, three feet off the ground. He wanted a sink four and a half feet off the ground. Wow. It was insanely high. Um, but that's what he wanted. And so that, that's how it started was I, it made me very cognizant of this idea that we're all different sizes. Yeah. Standard sizes don't make any sense. Yeah, yeah. One of the, one of the other ways is um, I had a client and she said, can you put a wall in front of the toilet, like three feet in front of the toilet? And I said, why, you know, and she's like, well, it's embarrassing. I said, I don't, okay, you have to tell me now. I really have to know now. (laughs) And she said, well, when I was a kid at my parents' house, I used to get terrible menstrual cramps and my parents, you know, hallway toilet, I could put my feet up on the wall when I was on the toilet and it would help me with the cramps. And she said, I told myself if I ever, you know, design my house. I'm, I, I want to do that again. So I said, Oh, that's great. Okay. So we picked, um, first of all, we picked a, you know, toilets come in different sizes too. They're like high, low, wide, yeah. elongated. So we picked a higher toilet. Um, it was actually for handicapped people, but like a sitting high toilet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I designed her, you know, measured her little legs and then, and then had the wall in front of it and then had the wainscoting, the, the tile go up much higher. And then we used light color tiles uh, and large tiles too, with minimal grout lines. So that way her footprints wouldn't mess up the wall. Nobody would notice footprints or dirt. Yeah. yeah. And you know, now every 28 days, I'm assuming she sits on that <laughs> toilet and puts her feet up on the wall. Awesome. Uh, and that's, that's uh, you know, it's, it's, that's the way, that's the reality. That's how people live. We, we poop and we shower and we shave and, you know, we like to daydream and look outside while we wash dishes. So it's designing a house is very intimate and you can have that same level of intimacy with, with office buildings, it's it's just that you can't personalize it as much to one client or mm, one family. Mm. So designing for yourself rather than the way you think you should. Um, yeah, you know. that's just one tip. You asked for three. That was one. <laughs> that's a pretty key one, though. I mean, that if people get their heads around that, that's that that would be a big step change for a lot of uh, people in the, early in the process. I would think. Um, the, the second one would be to set some audacious goals. Right. And, and having, having the goal creates a bit of a competition, not a competition, but a, 
it unifies the project team because remember, it's not just you and the architect. It's, there's the contractor and all the subcontractors and the engineer and the, even the building department. And so isn't it great when you can say this building is going to be net zero energy. We're going to produce more energy than we consume. That's our goal. It's a, and it's a, it's a wonderful goal because it's very absolute. You either do or you don't. Mm-hmm. And so um, by setting it as a goal, everybody kind of reaches a little further than they normally would. Yeah. As opposed to saying we're going to use less energy. We're yeah. going to use yeah. zero. And so it actually makes things easier to set a to set an audacious goal like that. And you can do it for many things. I mean, obviously net zero is an obvious one, but it would vary wildly on where in the world you are. In California, it's much easier to obtain than let's say in Wyoming, where mm-hmm. the coal industry subsidizes energy policy. But mm. um but you you can do it for water and you could do it for other things. Um you know, I've had a lot of clients over the years that were environmentally sensitive, that if they get anywhere near formaldehyde, they, they get hives and their throat closes up. And so it creates a very easy, absolute thing, which is, okay, um, Greg can't be around formaldehyde, so we can't have any in the building. Mm, mm. Or he'll get sick. So let's avoid all formaldehyde. It's, it becomes pretty easy, actually. I mean, yes, we have to work harder to find it, but we have... We all care about it. The project team is all contributing to that. The contractor and the subcontractors will all solicit ideas and work together. It doesn't have to be this kind of romanticized movie version of an architect, you know, sitting in the ivory tower and finding this stuff. It's like, hey, man, we're working as a group here. Help us get to this goal. Yeah, yeah. And so removing toxins is another great, very, very clear goal. And nowadays it's relatively easy. You know, 20 years ago, I had to go to the ends of the earth to find these things. And now, and you know, with, with bad internet and now it's, it's, they have whole trade shows about it. Yeah, totally. So designing for yourself, setting audacious goals, right? Anything else? Um, well, if you're talking specifically about a house, um, one thing that people overlook is it's not, it's more than just the house. It's, 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 it's where you put it, mm-hmm. right? So you want to design the house so that way you, you don't need to get in the car all the time, that you would maybe go for a smaller house in a more urban setting where you could walk to stuff. And there's a, you know plenty of places um, to do this. So I have, I have a good friend, uh, Matt. They bought a house in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Ann Arbor has this cute little downtown he walks five minutes out of downtown and he's in a fairly suburban looking area with very typical houses on the street, but he can walk to stuff. He walks to his daughter's school. He walks to shops, he walks to restaurants, but it's, it's, so he has this suburban feel, but yet the best of both worlds. And his house is a net zero house. He took a a 1905 house, a very, you know, 110 year old house and made it and, you know, produce more energy than it consumes. And it's, it's incredible. So it's a model for all of us. Yeah. Um, and, um, and so he's got this, you know, they're now starting to grow their own food. They're, they're, they're collecting rainwater. He's essentially in one sense, he's battening down for, for, you know, the effects of climate change. And in another sense, he's, he's realizing how important it is to be, to be that resilient and actually combine your personal values with the way that you live. And fantastic to have an example of where someone's done that with a remodel versus building from scratch. Yeah. often that's harder, but obviously there's a huge opportunity out there for all the existing buildings to 
transform them into something positive? Well, the existing buildings have to change. I mean, there's, we only, we only build so much new stuff. Uh, um, and in truth, it's the existing stuff that has to change. Yeah. Yeah. Eric, we're going to have to wrap up. Um, you've been very generous with your time. You are pretty much everywhere on the internet. Where <laughs> is the best place for people to check out what you're up to and, um, and kind of, uh, follow you? Well, the best place is probably, um, you know, uh, Twitter and Facebook is a good way to do that because there's, there's, that's updated constantly. Uh, but if you want more information about anything, um, the nonprofit's website is living-future.org. Mm-hmm. Um, the firm website is organicarchitect.com. Or if they want to just learn about me or see where I'm speaking or even see videos, they can go to ericcoreyfried.com. Awesome. Well, thank you very much, Eric, and I look forward to catching up in person at some stage uh, somewhere yeah. in the world. Um, and, uh, yeah, keep, uh, keep inspiring and, and challenging people. Will do. Thank you so much, Matthew. Such a privilege to have the opportunity to speak to someone like Eric. Um, yeah, so he's got 11 books out there. He's a, he's a distinguished author. Um, he's all over the Internet. On, he's been on TV quite often asked to make a, a comment about green architecture and he's just been out there just um, promoting and advocating for green architecture and green building for such a long time. It's, uh, it's really a privilege to have someone like that on the show. Love to know what you got out of that episode. If you enjoyed it, then uh, leave a comment in the show notes or you can also head over to iTunes and leave a rating or review over there. It'd be great to get that. Help spread the word. Also, if you are looking at doing a renovation or want some tips and, and some help with your house, uh, particularly here in Auckland, New Zealand right now, it's winter time, and I know that for my place, condensation is a big issue. I actually put a video up of uh, condensation in our place on our Facebook page last week. Um, but if you've got issues like that or you're thinking about changing, upgrading to LED lights or you're thinking about solar and you're not quite sure if solar is right for you, then get in touch. I have a limited number of spaces available for doing some consultation through the coming months and I would love to hear from you. If you are looking at doing a... Um, a new build or, or looking at some plans at the moment, then I can have an independent review of those plans because one of the concerns when you're in that stage is, is you don't want to make mistakes and it can be hard to get an independent perspective on what you're being told or what you're being sold by someone who's got a product or, or got a service that you're paying for. So if you'd like a, an independent view either in home or on your plans, then get in touch, uh, Matthew at homestylegreen.com, and I would love to see if I can help out. That's it for this week. Thank you very much for tuning in. Now go make a better place to live.